what just happened um, is different than the church I grew up from. I grew up in. When, when I was growing up, I, I grew up in a church that had priests in it. And um, I, I want to give you my perspective from second grade, my perspective on, on what a priest was. And uh, I mean no disrespect by this for, at, at all. I'm giving you my second grade perspective because that was when I was in Catholic school and um, the priests were very scary to me. They were unhappy men. They probably weren't, but as I looked at what they did as they, they walked up, they were in the front, and they would walk to this little house over here and then come over to these candles, and whatever they did, they seemed slow and unhappy and unenthused about what they were doing. Uh, they also, they spoke differently. Instead of just speaking, they spoke in a chant, and I didn't know what that was. I didn't realize that that was what they were supposed to do. I just thought, wow, these guys just speak weird. They, I don't know why they do that. They walked around with this long fishing pole that was gold, and on the end of the pole was a flame, and they would light these mysterious-looking candles throughout, and you know, my eyes would be this big. And then they would walk around with a bowl and, and on chains. And inside the bowl was something. And as they would swing it, this very strange and mysterious smoke would come out of there and fill the place with strange smells, smells I had never smelled before. It was scary. I was afraid of the priests. And um, one of the scariest times was also in second grade when the priest came in. There must have been a, a sore throat going around. And the priest came in and gave us this blessing. Now, you see the girl behind who's smiling? That was none of us. We were not smiling. In fact, if any of you remember lining up for the rubella umbrella shot, that's what this was like, only scarier. The priest would line us up and would come up to each one of us and say some words we didn't know and hold the candles over our throat. And to me, the only way this worked was that he scared the virus out of you. He, it was, that was what was working about about the priest. And so a very scary thing. This morning, we are going to look in 1 Samuel chapters 3 and 4. I'm sorry, chapters 2 and 3. And in this chapter, uh, we have both the rise of a priest and the fall of a priest. The chapter is pretty dark. Most of the narrative as it goes through is very dark about the decline of the priest of Eli and his sons. But throughout this narrative, there are these drops of light that the Lord gives us as he talks about Samuel arising. In 2.11, chapter 2, verse 11, we have Samuel being a boy. By, four, chapter, by chapter 4, verse 1, Samuel is a man who is declaring the word of God and the people recognize, recognize him. Just as we recognize Pastor John this morning, recognize uh, Samuel's work and the Lord's work through Samuel. And so we are going to first look at the failure of the priests in 1 Samuel. What I want to remind you of is what a priest is. A priest is a person who stands between a sinner and God. So a priest is somebody who is supposed to advocate for another person. So it's a man who is advocating for a man or a woman before God, who is mediating, who is going between man and God. 
And so as we start this narrative, I just want to remind you of what we have looked at in the first chapter. We saw Hannah, a godly woman, and her husband Elkanah. Hannah praying that God would give her a son and that she promised that if God would give her a son, she would give him back to the service of the Lord. And well, God granted her prayer and gave Hannah a son, the son Samuel, and they are now at the temple And we're reading about this now. Then Elkanah went to his home in Ramah after being at the temple. But the boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now this should be a little shocking to us because this was a boy ministering to the Lord. For the Israelites, you were not a priest until you were 30 years old. Even and just for those who are designed to be a priest. But so this is kind of a shocking that this boy was ministering to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests of the people. I want to talk for a moment about this term, worthless men. Some of your Bibles will say the son of, they were sons of Belial, and that's what it literally is in the Hebrew, sons of Belial. What's interesting is that in the previous chapter, do you remember when Hannah was praying and her lips were moving, but no sound was coming out? Eli, the priest, saw her and said, why are you doing this? Stop being drunk and, and clean up your act. And she says, I am not a worthless woman. The word there is, I am not a daughter of Belial. I'm not worthless. I am speaking to God. The writer of 1 Samuel then uses that same term here to describe Eli, who accused her of that, his sons, as sons of Belial or sons of worthlessness. In the New Testament, Paul refers to Belial as Satan. So what we come to understand really is that as we look at this in the 21st century, when we talk a lot about self-worth and self-value and all of that, what we see is that our value comes from what we worship. You see, Hannah was worshiping the God who created her. Hannah was praying to the God who made her. She went to the God who loved her. And in her God, she found her worth as a human being. It was there that she was able to cope with the difficulties of life. Contrast that with with, uh, uh, Eli's sons. They were disrespecting the worship and they they were basically dishonoring God. And they, as a result, became worthless in their worship of God. So here's what was happening. When any man was offering a sacrifice, meaning when a worshiper would come to offer a sacrifice to God, the priest's servant would uh, would come while the meat was being boiled with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust the fork into the pan, kettle, cauldron, or pot. All that the fork brought up with the priest would take up, the priest would take up for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So again, if we were reading this at the time it was written, we'd be shocked. What? They're, they're doing that? They're taking this three-pronged fork and taking whatever meat they want? You see, we're talking about Shiloh. Shiloh at this point is the only place where all of Israel were to, was to come and worship. It was the only place where the whole nation could meet with God. And here these men were 
at, in this place, doing this, and in this place was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that was covered in gold. Okay, this is a, a what, what it may have looked like, a wooden box covered in gold. Inside that box was the law that Moses had carved out, that God had given him. The tablets of the law were inside that box. On top of the box, we have the two cherubim, the gold forms of the cherubim, and that the top of the box is called the mercy seat. And why this is important is because it was at the mercy seat that one receives mercy. It's here in God's presence that a worshiper finds forgiveness of sins and finds restored fellowship. And the priest would go and would go here and be on behalf of the sinner, on behalf of the person, would go and make sacrifices here and, and mediate for the person. So here's what one of the problems was, was that they were not only stealing from the worshiper as they would come in and take the meat, they would also, let me back up. I, I've gotten ahead of myself. Let me get my brain back in order here for a minute. God had given specific orders, specific instructions for the priests on how to handle the speak, how, how to handle the sacrifices. So it wasn't expected that I as a worshiper would go and know all the rules, but it was expected that the priests would. And the priests would, would go, they would take the sacrifice and they would set aside the fat portions for God. Any piece of fat in there would be burned for God. And that was called the, the fat portion or God's sacrifice. And that belonged to God. And as that would burn, they would burn that fat, the smell, the aroma of the burning fat, of the burning meat would fill the area. And it would be a, the sweet reminder of fellowship restored between God and sinful man. Also, as uh, the, it was... Uh, it was decided, it was designed by God that the priests would get a portion of that sacrifice. They would get the shoulder and the thigh, and that would be their meal. The rest of the meal would go to the family that just sacrificed, and they would celebrate. They would celebrate God's forgiveness together over this beautiful meal of food. So what Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, were doing was they were taking the meat that belonged to the people, so they were hindering their ability to celebrate and enjoy the fellowship with God, and they were taking the portions that belonged to God himself. People, when we take what belongs to God and use it for ourselves, it's never going to go well. God has declared in this situation that the part of this offering belonged to him, and again, his purpose was to remind the people of his goodness. They were stealing that, stealing that, Remember that a priest is supposed to represent man to God. Well, Hophni and Phinehas, they were not satisfied with the shoulder and with the, with the thigh. And so they took the Lord's fat and they got fat on it themselves. So what was happening here was before they burned the fat, the priest would, would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first. I mean, surely you're going to burn the fat to the Lord first and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. 
Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. I want to take a little detour here. There is a Hebrew word, kabod, kabod, and it means glory. And in these chapters, this word is going to come out a lot, but it comes out in several different translations. It's the word glory, it's the word honor, and it's the word weight, as in something that is heavy. Now, how these are connected is that when this word is used, it means that if something has glory, it has weight to it. It's very present. It, is, it has gravity to it. It's something that's to be taken very seriously because it has weight in it. So we have Eli's sons stealing literally the fat, the weight of the offering, stealing it and eating it themselves. And we'll find out later on that they are literally getting fat on it themselves. And in fact, at the end of chapter four, Eli is going to, is going to die because he's so fat, he, he falls over and breaks, his weight breaks his neck. So you have this play on words with glory and honor and weight. Contrast them stealing this little portion of fat with Hannah, who is here giving her son. You see the difference? They're taking a piece of meat and she is giving her son because she dedicated him to the Lord. He belonged to the Lord and she, as difficult as it was, was bringing her son to the Lord and they're stealing a piece of meat. Do you see how, how the weight of those two things is very different? The weight, the serious weight of glory and the, the handling in a lighthearted way what God, what really belongs to God. So instead of, instead of mediating for the people, they were impeding worship. They were destroying fellowship between man and God. And in contrast to that, one of these lights. Now Samuel is ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. Again, the linen ephod was a priestly garment. Here is a boy wearing the linen ephod. In spite of what, ha what was happening with Eli's sons, Samuel was being faithful and seeking to serve the Lord. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. In other words, Samuel is growing. Every year, the robe gets a little bigger, a little bigger. Samuel is growing. And so, so we have, what's going on, Lord? We have this dark story, and yet there's this, this drop of light right here with Samuel. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children from this woman in the place of one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their home and the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. She gave what belonged to the Lord and the Lord blessed her. It's how it works. It's how it works. Now Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served in the doorway of the tent of meeting. So added to their sins is now sexual misconduct. These women were women who were volunteering at the, at the service of the temple. Maybe they were caring for, for the children of, of worshipers. Maybe they were just helping set up the sacrifices. Whatever they were doing, they were helping and they were being misused and abused by Hophni and Phinehas. 
And we have to see the connection to today's churches. I mean, we're not even shocked anymore when we hear about the, the most recent pastor who has fallen or the most recent youth director who has fallen or when whole denominations, uh, we discover they've spent years hiding inappropriate behavior. We're not even shocked by that anymore. It's so similar. And I think it's very appropriate that on a day that we ordain a man for ministry that we're talking about this passage. Because Pastor John Desiderio, Pastor John Rossetti, Stephen, Greg, our elders, every one of us are subject to the same sins as Hophni and Phinehas. We're all made of the same stuff. And since the fall of Adam, there's been this, this strange mix of distorted worship and perverted sexuality, and they come together. And w- when they do come together, it's very dangerous. And so the call to you all as a church is to pray for us. Pray for your leaders. Though we are made of the same stuff, we also have the same Holy Spirit that gives victory to men throughout the world. And we need you to pray that we would avail ourselves of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord would protect us from temptation, would keep our eyes from from evil, keep our hearts from evil. We want to to handle the weight of God's glory with the kind of seriousness it deserves to present him who he is and not have that be thwarted by our own sins. So you pray for us. Eli said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the Lord is not, for, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. The scandal is out. The whole nation knew about it. Oh, you're going up to worship? Oh, good luck with that. I hope you don't have to see Hophni or Phinehas. I hope you get to eat some of your own food. Their reputation is out. There's no other place for Israel to go to worship the Lord. And these men were hindering it. And then Eli makes this most powerful statement. He says, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But... If a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? If the priests who are supposed to be standing between me and God are are corrupt themselves, then what hope is there for them or for me? If the men who are supposed to be experts in God's law are breaking God's law, what hope is there for them or for me as a worshiper? And so now we just looked at the failure of the priests In 1 Samuel, we're going to look at the failure of the priests in all of the Old Testament. And to do that, I'm going to take you back to Exodus chapter 19. Actually, I'm going to go back a little further. In Genesis, God meets with Abraham and he gives him an unconditional covenant, an unconditional promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, the nation of Israel. I'm going to bless you with with so many children and grandchildren you can't even count them. I'm going to bless you with beautiful land and through you I'm going to bless the whole world. An unconditional promise. Then about 450 years later, God comes to Moses and he says, I'm going to make with you a conditional, a conditional covenant. This one's different. There's a condition on it. Listen to how this went. 
Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if, and that's the conditional part, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, now out of the nations, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you get what it's saying? Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests for the whole world. That meant that they were supposed to be the, the ones who went out from their land and go into all the world and say, God is good. God is forgiving. Come to God. He, his sacrifice is enough to cover you, and you can have a relationship with God again. Israel was supposed to be that, but they failed at that. What's sad about this is that right after this, they said, yes, we will do it. We'll do everything you say, Lord. So the condition is, yeah, we're going to do it, and we'll be a kingdom of priests. And then following this comes about 613 laws. Israel couldn't do it. And you know what? You or I couldn't have done it either, right? We could never have met up to God's holy and perfect standard. He's holy. He's perfect, we could never have met up to that. So Israel failed at being a priest. And then after Israel failed, God said, well, then I'm going to make one family a kingdom of priests for Israel. So now who's supposed to be the kingdom of priests, they need their own set of priests. So God takes the family of Aaron, Moses' brother, and says, you and all of your descendants will be priests for my people and you will learn how to worship and you will stand between the people and me and speak on their behalf to me. And Eli is from Aaron's fourth son. If you follow the line through the Old Testament, you realize that he's from the fourth son and his line is, is, uh, comes directly from Aaron. And so we have this question remaining. If a man sins against God, who will intercede for him? Eli's sons would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put, to put them to death. It's a hard passage. But here's what's happening. They had sinned so greatly, they didn't want to repent. They didn't want to know about forgiveness. They had sinned so greatly that their hearts had become completely hardened to the Lord. There was no chance for them to repent. No chance any longer for them to say they were sorry to God because they didn't want it. They have chosen this path. And so the question still remains, if a man sins against God, who will intercede for him? And then you gotta catch the drama, the next phrase. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. And so we're asking, so is it Samuel? Is Samuel going to be the one who the Lord brings? And we don't know that. We can't answer that yet. But what we get is that sin will not prevail. Though we are in this, this narrative of darkness, sin will not prevail. God will break through. We just don't know how yet. Then a man of God, a prophet, came to Eli and he said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? He's saying, did I not 
choose Aaron and say, Aaron, you and your descendants are going to be priests for me? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests and to go up to my altar to burn incense? Did I not teach them all the ways of of how to be a priest? Did I not carry an ephod before me? Did I not clothe them? Did I not give give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of, of the sons of Israel? Did I not provide enough food for them? Did I leave you lacking at all? No, no. So he says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offerings, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? Why do you kick at it as if it has no weight? You kick it and it's gone. That's what you've done to my sacrifice. It has no weight for you. You've kicked it and it's out of sight now. Why do you honor your sons? Why do you give your sons weight above me? Why do you make yourself fat with my glory, the glory that I deserve on the choicest offerings of my people? Why do you make yourself fat on that? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, but now declares the Lord, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who ascribe weight to me, I will ascribe weight to. But those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. It's like comparing this this giant boulder, this enormous boulder sitting here to a snowflake over here. God deserves to be honored, to be taken with gravity. And that's what he is looking for. Eli and his sons have disregarded that. He says, behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. In other words, all your lineage will die young. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping. It's very interesting. In the next chapter, we'll see that Eli's eyes had failed. He, he was so old, he couldn't see anymore. But God is saying, your, el- your eyes, though they may fail to see, they will not fail to weep over what you see. They will, you will grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. And when that happens, Eli, you will know that I will end the line of priesthood from your family. Get ready. What's the question? If a man sins against God, who can intercede for him? And God says, but I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. You men can't do this. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before me or before my anointed always. So we ask ourselves, who is this? Is Samuel, it's got to be Samuel, right? He's the next guy, this whole chapter is leading up to his, his great work as a priest. 
But you know what? It can't be Samuel. You know why? Because it says, I will build him an enduring house. In other words, he will have an eternal line of priests. In chapter 6, we're going to see Samuel's sons did the same thing. They turned away from the Lord, and he was not a priest anymore. What's interesting about Samuel, too, is that God didn't need to raise up a man from the line of Aaron. Samuel doesn't come from Aaron's line. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, Samuel doesn't come from Aaron's line, but God raised up Samuel to be a priest, but he would not be the priest that would last forever, that would have an enduring line. And so maybe we, we look down the road a little bit and we see in the next couple of generations, we actually see the priesthood, the lineage of, of Levi diminishing. Just, and, and within about three generations, there's no more mention of him or any of his children in the priesthood. But we see the rise of another priest named Zadok. Maybe he's the one. But no, because as you go further in, in the Old Testament, you realize not even Zadok. There's no one who can fulfill this, but there is. You see, God will raise up for himself a faithful high priest. Jesus Christ, our high priest, God would have, have to intercede himself. See, a priest is a man who stands in place of a man. It never worked. It didn't work at all. Man fails, man rebels, man is worthless in his worship. God had to raise up his own priest that was not dependent on human lineage. God had to break into humanity. The book of Hebrews talks about this in such a powerful way. It says that Jesus Christ is a much better high priest, first of all, because he's eternal. Second of all, because his priesthood is based on his resurrection. It uses the term, by the power of an indestructible life. He rose from the dead. He himself is indestructible. And finally, he was appointed by God. Listen to what it says in Hebrews. Such a high priest truly meets our need. Finally. We've been waiting for this. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Does that sound like Hophni and Phinehas? No. Does it sound like Samuel? No. This is Jesus Christ, a priest who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. You see, Jesus doesn't have to sacrifice animals as a substitute. He himself became our substitute and died on our behalf to pay the penalty of our sins. And now he can stand and, and be our advocate. Jesus is our high priest you see, throughout all of the world, throughout all culture, every culture, man has been looking to deal with this problem of the gulf between himself and God. And it doesn't matter if it's the true God or some fake God, some idol or whatever. Every religion, there is a gulf between man and God. And man solves that problem one of two ways. The first way is, somehow I must arouse this God, get his attention, and get him to give me favor. And so we see throughout history, we see child sacrifice, we see virgin sacrifice, we see people who are cut themselves trying to arouse and awaken their God. Whatever it takes, we see people who try to arouse their God just by doing good works. That's how I was growing up. I thought, if I do enough good works, God will give me some attention. I'll get his favor. But the problem is, we fail at that. Man is a failure in this. 
We can't possibly do enough good works. We can't possibly cut ourselves or sacrifice enough virgins. Don't try it. We just can't do it. We cannot arouse, we cannot fill the gulf between us and God. So the second way that I might do this is say, well, if I can't do it, then I need to get somebody else to do it for me, a priest, somebody to be my advocate, somebody to stand in between me and God, and he can do that for me. The problem is, if I ask you to be my priest, you to be my advocate, you to be my mediator, you're as miserable a sinner as I am. You can't do it for me, right? You're no better than I am, and I'm no better than you are. We're all in the same boat. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus advocates for us, and he intercedes for us. So what's our takeaway in all this? What are you trusting in? What have you put your trust in? You know there is a gap between you and God. If you are not a believer and have not put your trust in the sacrifice of Christ, there is a gap between you and God. What are you trusting in? Good works? Oh, if I do enough, that'll, that'll do it. You're coming to church? I know we have regular attenders here who don't know the Lord. You come into church, is that going to do it? Is God going to look at you and say, oh, finally, you've paid for your sins because you went to church 230 times? God's not going to do that. You come to church with a bunch of other sinners. There's no, no holiness here, right? What are you trusting in? You know, Eli and his sons showed contempt for the sacrificial system. They hated the sacrificial system and because of that, there was no other means for them to be saved. If it was the sacrifices of these animals that was, that was uh, uh, getting the forgiveness of God, and they were abusing that sacrifice, there was no other means for salvation. They could not be saved. They could not be forgiven. And the whole Old Testament, we know, is pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So it remains for us if we treat the cross lightly, if we don't give the glory, the weight that the cross deserves, if we treat the cross with contempt, there's no other sacrifice. You have given up hope. You have given up any hope of salvation, hope of forgiveness, hope of relationship with God. Listen to what the writers of Hebrews says here. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant, talking about the cross, that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. People, the cross is the glory of God. It is the absolute glory of God. It is to his honor that he would sacrifice himself for us. And if we treat that cross lightly, then we are forsaking the only hope of salvation. Now, treating it lightly might look like this. It might look like, like um, 
I hate Christ. I hate Jesus. I, I hate Christians. I want nothing to do with the church. Or it, it might look like this. You know, that's fine. He died on the cross. Plenty of people died. In fact, plenty of people died on crosses. It means nothing to me. I don't feel the weight of that in my life. It doesn't apply to me. Both of those are despising God's sacrifice, are treating God's sacrifice not with the glory it deserves, but kicking it to the side, treating it lightly. Kicking at the cross, at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is saying, I have no hope. For there is one God and there is one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all the testimony given in the proper time. There's no other option. There's one. One God, one mediator, one high priest who sacrificed himself for you and me. So if you are here today and you have not trusted, if you had not taken the weight of that cross and said, I need that in my life, consider the consequences. I mean, isn't it better to be built on a rock than on a snowflake, right? The weight of the cross is our foundation. And that cross is the only thing that fills the gap between you a sinner, and you know you're a sinner, and sin is anything from, you know, something we think, something we do, something we say. That gap between you and God can only be filled by the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you consider today what rejecting that sacrifice means for you and say, no, I don't want to live that way anymore. Now for believers, what does this mean for us? It means you and I have an advocate It means we have somebody who is standing before God full-time, 24-7, 365 days a year, on into eternity saying, Lord, God, I sacrificed for them. She is a daughter of mine. He's a son of mine. Accept them, forgive them. God is graciously giving out all because his son Jesus paid all the price for us. Jesus is always praying for us that we would be protected. Jesus is praying his Holy Spirit around us. Jesus is interceding for us constantly. You and I have an advocate. And then even more, what this means for us. Remember we said, God said, I will raise up for myself a faithful high priest with, uh, who will have an enduring house. Well, what's that enduring house? Jesus had no children, did he? We are the enduring house. We are the kingdom of priests that he has, he has said will last forever. Listen to what, what the apostle Peter says to us. But you are a chosen race. Here it is, a royal priesthood. Believers, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. God owns us. He loves us and he possesses us so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, you not only have Jesus Christ advocating for you as your high priest, but you and I are priests in this world, which means that we have the joy of sharing the excellencies of his mercy, the joy of sharing that through Jesus, any, per- any person, man, woman, child, can have forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God. You and I are the priests who have the opportunity to intercede for our families, to be praying for our families, our neighbors, our our friends, our community. You and I are the priests of this world now. We're that enduring house of priesthood that Christ has called us to. And so, so we have the opportunity now to respond to what the Lord has brought to us through this passage. As we sing this last song, uh, Stephen's going to come up and the worship team will come up and lead us through a final song that's all about Jesus being our high priest. And you sing that and, and I wanna invite you to come forward if you've, if you've not given the proper weight of glory to the cross in your life, today's the day to do it. Or as a, as a believer you say, you know, I haven't realized that I am a priest. My job, my joyful task is to speak the excellencies of God to the world, and I want to make a commitment to do that. Do that as we sing this song together now. Let's stand together.